The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Lord, that is our prayer this morning, that you would grant to us to speak in boldness continuously, without hindrance, to boldly speak of who you are and what you have done in Jesus while you continue to work through his name. Lord, would you be so pleased as to use us individually and this church as part of your worldwide effort to lift up the name of Jesus, to bring in your kingdom, to renew this creation. Lord, you said you're going to do that. Would you please do it? And would you please use us? And towards that end, Father, I ask you to use this morning this passage from your word to change us. Would you produce growth in our hearts and minds? Would you change us, Lord? Continue to grant to us courage, Christ focus, and bold proclamation of him for his glory for the growth of your church, and in fact, for our great good. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I recently read a story about an Englishman named John Harper. Born in 1872, he grew up with a passion for God and an equal passion to see people reconciled to him through faith in Christ. He loved God and he loved people and he wanted to see them brought together. And so he grew up as a passionate evangelist and then eventually became a pastor in the city of London. And as time went on, he was asked to come over to America and to participate in some evangelism campaigns here. And so he boarded a ship and set sail. Unfortunately, though, during the journey, that ship struck an iceberg and sank. And the only thing we know about John Harper's final moments on earth come to us from the testimony of a young Scotsman a few months later in Canada. He recounted how after their ship, the Titanic, sank, there were many people in the freezing cold dark water clinging to various pieces of debris. And as he says, a wave suddenly brought a man near, John Harper, and he called out to me, Man, are you saved? And I said, No. And he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Quote from the book of Acts. And then suddenly a wave carried us apart again. And then a wave brought us back together and he said, Man, are you saved yet? (laughs) No. Believe. And with that, John Harper lost his grip and he sank. And then in the words of the Scotsman, There alone in the night with two miles of water under me. I trusted Christ as my personal Savior. I am John Harper's last convert.
I read a story like that, I hear a story like that, and I marvel at God's sovereign saving grace and His providence that oversees all those hardships to bring together various circumstances. That man must have already known the gospel because Harper didn't share it with him. He just told him to believe. He must have already known, but he was not yet ready to believe. So God brought him to the point of hopelessness and called to him a couple of times and saved him. It's a remarkable story about the providence of God. But I also read a story like that and I marvel at John Harper. Don't you marvel at John Harper? The Titanic just sank. He's holding on to a piece of debris in the midst of freezing cold water at night in the middle of nowhere with two miles of water beneath him. And what's on his mind? Evangelism. He's concerned for the lost, for that man right there that I'm washed up next to, and I'll challenge him, and I'll ask him, and I'll call him to believe. It's amazing, especially given the fact that I didn't mention that he has a six-year-old daughter somewhere out there in a boat. He was traveling with his six-year-old daughter when they hit the iceberg. John Harper put her in a boat just in case. No, we're going to be rescued, but just in case, why don't you get in this boat? So she's out there somewhere in a boat, and I think that if I'd been in his shoes, I would have been in serious survival mode, trying to strap together some debris, find my daughter, look for her boat somehow or another. I don't think that evangelism would have been on the top of my to-do list. But it was for him. And it seems to me that that's what Luke wants to commend to us here at the conclusion of the book of Acts. Today we're finishing up the book of Acts, chapter 28, and it seems that in the way this book is ended by Luke, that he wants to lift up to us the priority of proclamation. We're going to be in Acts one more time next week with a summary sermon, but we finish the book of Acts today, the text of it. We see Paul in Rome. Last week, he arrived in Rome after wintering on the island of Malta, He'd been coming through the Mediterranean. There'd been a massive storm. He'd been shipwrecked on the island. Using their last bit of strength, they'd struggled ashore, wet and cold, and then to top it all off, Paul got bit by a poisonous snake. What a series of hardships. All of it under the hand of God. God meant the storm. God meant the shipwreck. God meant the snake bite because God meant to put Paul on Malta to carry the gospel to the Maltese. Providence of God using hardships to advance his kingdom. But he left Malta eventually and made it to Italy. And when he got to Italy, he saw Christians there from several different cities. And upon meeting them, saw the hand of God that had moved in them to change their allegiances and to change their lives. And he was greatly encouraged and gave thanks to God. And then came into Rome and settled. So now he's in Rome. The very end of the book. What next? What's going to happen? Well, notably, pretty much what always happens when Paul comes to a new city. And that's kind of the point. Let me read the text. It's Acts chapter 28. I'm going to begin in verse 16 and read through the end of the book. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, 
Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letter from Judea about you, and, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, and from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul's basically on house arrest, chained to a guard that would rotate out every four hours, 24 hours a day. So he's confined a little bit, but other than that, given that he's a Roman citizen and has not yet been condemned, he has a good deal of freedom. So after settling here for a couple days in Rome, what's he going to do? Well, what does Paul usually do when he arrives in a new city? He goes to the synagogue. Why? So as to engage them and to create an opportunity by which he can preach the gospel to them. But he's confined. He can't go to the synagogue. So instead, he invites the synagogue over to his place. And the leaders come. And Paul begins to explain himself. And the manner in which he does this is very tactful. It's not deceitful. He never lies here, but he's very tactful in trying to create as much solidarity with them as he possibly can. Notice he says, I had not done anything wrong against our people, our fathers. He's including himself in the pronoun. Hadn't done anything wrong. He was ceremonially pure when he was in the temple and arrested. He hadn't, he hadn't done anything wrong then. But still, they arrested him and pressed charges. And though the Romans didn't find anything wrong with him, he was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though he had no charge to press against his own nation. He's trying to, in every way possible, say, I have no beef with Jews. Why is he doing that? Because he says, I want to talk to you about something. I want to explain to you why it is that the hope, why it is that the hope of Israel has landed me in jail. He wants to create an opportunity so we can talk to them. There's going to be offense enough in that. Let's just talk. And they agree. They want to hear about it too. 
They've heard some things, but they don't know everything about what he's up to, and so they want to hear it from his own mouth. And verses then 23 to 28 record that event, this extended discussion. And this thing lasted all day long. It must have been a wide-ranging discussion over many different topics, many different passages, back and forth. They're dialoguing about this, but it can all be summed up under two headings, the kingdom of God and Jesus. In talking to Jews about the kingdom of God, they're on familiar ground there. The Jews would have well known that the Old Testament was talking about and forecasting and foretelling a coming of the kingdom, the reign of God, the hoped-for reign of God's Messiah. They were expecting it and looking for it. So he probably talked about that and reminded them of some of the markers of it, how they would know when it was coming. And then he moved over to say, and it has come in Jesus. That would have been where the rub arose. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that was to come. And he, and he argued that from the prophets and from the law. This must have been an amazing discussion. All day long they went on about this. And it says, verse 24, that some of them were well on their way to being convinced. Praise God. Some of them were moving Think of it like a dimmer switch where the light goes on and then it kind of slides up, 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 and it's getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. There are some people that are sitting there thinking all day long, whoa, there it is. And th- there it is. Wow. The light's going on for them and they're seeing it and they are becoming convinced even at the same time with the same argument, other people, the dimmer switch is going down. They're also seeing it and saying, No. They disbelieved. And that's an interesting word. It is not just a statement of they didn't get it or an announcement of the result. They did not believe. The nuance is of deliberate, willful action to disbelieve. So say, I see how A connects to B, connects to C, connects to D. No. Not because I have a problem with A doesn't connect to B, it's because I don't want it to be so. I disbelieve. Half the room's doing that, which causes a discussion amongst them, a disagreement. Some some, some see it and disbelieve, some see it and do believe, and wonder why in the world these guys are reacting that way. And in fact, why did the Jerusalem leadership react this way? It's true, it's right here. Don't you see it? And that's where the conversation ended. The meeting breaks up with the common mixed results of the gospel. Civil disorder is sown and that the Jewish community is now divided. And they walk out arguing after Paul makes one more statement, which is a stunning rebuke. This is a strong statement that he delivers to them as his closing remark. Designed to break the pride of some and to encourage others in their confusion. Why are they reacting this way? Paul quotes God, the Holy Spirit. Notice how he says, God said this through the prophet Isaiah. This is the word of God, and he quotes him. This is a a strong statement. It's, It's used six times in the New Testament. And in all six of those times, and in its original context in the book of Isaiah, It's used with different nuances in different places in the New Testament, but every time it includes the idea of judgment. It includes a people who are willfully resistant to the Word of God, and therefore God seals them over and hardens them in judgment. 
The word will come to them. And in their fallenness, they'll hear it and see it, but not see it. And then that means the word will have the effect of coming and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and producing calluses. This people's heart has grown dull. Literally is, it has become thickened. It's been made fat. The word comes and it creates calluses. And it seals over all sensitivity. Lest they see and hear and turn and I forgive them. That word lest is a word of purpose. Like if I were to say to you, uh, take my hand lest I fall. I want you to do the first thing so that the second thing does not happen. I'm going to speak clearly lest you misunderstand. I'm going to do something so that the second thing does not happen. God is sending out the word to callous over the hearts so that it does not happen that they turn and are forgiven. Really? That's kind of hard for some of our our minds to get wrapped around. Doesn't God always, perpetually, forever hold out mercy and grace? No, he does not. Read the prophets. God is very patient and slow to anger. But he does anger. He is long-suffering, but not eternally suffering. He holds out hope, holds out hope, holds out hope, and then finally says, enough. We're done. That's what he's saying in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah hears that and says, God, how long do I have to deliver that message? And he says, until I have absolutely, utterly wiped out this people. It is sobering. It's the last half of Isaiah 6, if you want to look at it yourself. Paul brings that message to them. And it is a devastating rebuke of the half of the audience that has disbelieved. But it is not a devastating pronouncement of gospel failure. Half of them believed. And more so, verse 28, this means that the nations are going to hear the gospel and they will listen to it. Verses 30 and 31, then the conclusion of the book, display that. Paul, for two years, free to preach in Rome, is again and again and again proclaiming the kingdom of God and Jesus as the Lord Christ. Very same thing that he said to them, the Jews. And he does it with all boldness, a common theme throughout Acts, and without hindrance. He's in Rome, awaiting trial, chained to numerous soldiers who hear him constantly talking about the gospel. Many of them, actually, we can read elsewhere in the New Testament, they believe, and this becomes a topic of conversation in the palace guard itself. But nobody shuts him down. The Roman authorities are clearly aware of what's going on for years, and they don't shut him down. They themselves listen and let everybody else come and listen. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth is fulfilled, in a sense, right here in Paul himself, brought from Jerusalem to the center of the earth, Rome, preaching continually, on and on, boldly, without hindrance, and they listen. Those words, boldly and unhindered, in the original language, are the last words of the sentence, last words of the whole book. That's where Paul wants to leave it. That's where Luke wants to leave it, I'm sorry. 
He wants to end on that. He knew the outcome of Paul's trial when he wrote this book. In fact, most people reading the book knew the outcome of Paul's trial. But what do we get instead? As you're reading through the end of the book of Acts and you read trial, 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 five trials shape the last part of the book of Acts. And you know that it's building towards this pinnacle of this great trial before Caesar. As you're coming and you're reading and you're coming to the end, you're thinking, well, the conclusion is, what happened at the trial? But what Luke actually says is, this isn't about the trial. It doesn't even mention it. What you get instead is, Paul arrives in a new city, approaches the Jewish population, preaches the gospel to them. Some believe, the rest don't and are hardened. Paul shakes the dust off of his garments and moves over to the Gentiles and for years preaches the gospel to them, boldly unhindered the end. Just like happened everywhere else Paul went. It goes on and on and on. Do you get the point? Luke, God has prioritized something here for us. God has prioritized the proclamation of the gospel. That's what this is about. It is not a history book. It is not a biography of Paul. It is about the proclamation of the gospel. That's the main point for this morning. God has prioritized the proclamation of the gospel. Have you? I'm going to break that in half and make two observations from this text. First one is related to the grand purpose of God in the world. If I were to make one statement about what God is up to, this would be pretty close to a good summary sentence. God will surely gather in his people through the proclamation of the gospel. God is doing this, and he will surely succeed. God is surely gathering in all of his people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, pulling them together, and it will succeed because he is doing it by sovereign grace, providentially working in all things to bring about his desired ends, his purposes It's what God is doing yesterday, today, every day, gathering together His people, pursuing, capturing, drawing those in who are His lost sheep, or to use the language of this passage, expanding His kingdom, pressing out the borders of His realm until one day the glory of the Lord covers all of the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what he's doing. He is on the march, expanding his reign into more and more and more human hearts every single day. How does he do it? Through the proclamation of the gospel. Not by sword, not by trickery. Through the bold, clear proclamation of the gospel. Summed up twice in this passage under two broad headings in verse 23, the kingdom and Jesus. Verse 31, the kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's about. The kingdom of God has come in the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. Kingdom of God is that hope of Israel that he was talking about. And we've mentioned this many times before. We need to look around and realize that this world, 
you connect some dots here. You, you know this, you live this all the time, but think about this in biblical terms. This world is fallen. It's broken. We're all familiar with this. This is a place that is filled with hardship and discord and pain. It's a world of broken relationships, of a struggle to make ends meet. And at the end of the day, of a sense of a gnawing sense of meaninglessness, meaninglessness, all is meaningless. I got up, I worked today, I made some money, I put food on the table so I can get up and work tomorrow and make money and put food on the table so I can get up tomorrow again and again and again and again. And on the weekends I play golf. Why? Meaningless, meaningless, says the writer of the Ecclesiastes. That gnaws at the back of our hearts and our souls if we ever stop and think about it. That's what this world is. It can be a world of beauty. But it is also a world of startling cruelty and evil. Something is not right here. And that something that's not right here is what's not right here. The problem is here in every human heart. The world's broken because we are. The world is racked by sin because we are sinners. We need deliverance from that. And God promised to step in and bring a king who would reign in righteousness and deliver us personally and renew this world corporately. He promised that. That's what his kingdom is. Spoken in language to Jews and written down in a book, but it's for all of us. His changing of our human reality and of our world. He promised that, and then he said, I have brought it about in King Jesus. Foretold, promised, and fulfilled. I sent my son into the world, and he took on a body. Why? To die. This is the part where it gets tough for some. Tough for half the audience before Paul there in verse 24. Because the kingdom does not work with a dead king. Those ideas don't fit. And Paul labored to show from the prophets and Moses, absolutely they do. You need deliverance, and none of us can fix it. No human being can turn that crank. We can't change. You can improve a little bit, but you can't change God must act to deliver. And the problem is that we each stand under curse from God because of our sin. He needed a body not just to tell us what to do to be better and be different. We can't. We need our sin atoned for and our curse removed. He needed a body to shed His blood. And not just, careful in that, not just shedding His blood. We use that language. What we mean is death. If he got a paper cut and he bled, that would not have done it. If he'd lost a limb and bled a lot, that would not have done it. The only way he can turn away God's curse that rests on us because of our sin is by his death. And careful there, not just death in any old way. Not death by old age, not death by malaria, not death by getting run over by a chariot or something. Death on a cross only. Why? Because the law said so. 
the law of Moses that Paul argued from, said, Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. Not anyone who dies, not anyone who sheds blood, anyone who is hung on a tree. Curse of God rests on tree-hung ones. Jesus came to be hung on a tree to bear the curse that should be on me and should be on you. He had to die on a cross. That's where he takes up his reign. He is lifted up to die, lifted up on his throne, as it were, and begins his reign in his death. That's how he delivers us. That's how he deals with our sin problem. That's how he will one day root out all sin from the world by eliminating the penalty of God and restoring us to his blessing. That's the message of kingdom and Jesus. More that could be said about that, sure. That's the heart of the message that Paul preached to Jews and then to everybody, in fact. Same thing. But the emphasis in this passage is not on the message itself. I've just preached the message, essentially. I have to. That has to be put out there. You have to hear that. And that message, of course, believed, is what reconciles you to God. And so if you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted Christ's death on the cross, I plead with you, do so, and you will be delivered. Man, woman, are you saved? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be. Don't trust him, and you won't be. I have to preach that. You need to hear it and believe it. But that's not really the main emphasis of the passage, because you notice... Luke feels comfortable just summing up a whole day's conversation about what I was just saying in just a couple of words, kingdom and Jesus. He's not really giving us all the details. His emphasis more rests on the effect of it, on the result. This message will surely gather in God's people. That's the point I'm working here, the observation that I'm making. And we see it in verse 24, and that some of them were persuaded and were drawn in and believed. That's obvious, but ironically, perhaps counterintuitively, the other response in verse 24 is the same message. They disbelieve, they reject. I'll try to be clear here, but this could be a little difficult. I'm going to try to be clear. They disbelieve and they reject, and then Paul levels this difficult prophecy on them from Isaiah 6 about God's hardening them in judgment. But he doesn't just give them that quote to rip into them and, and kind of tell them off. He's got something else in mind. Verse 28, Therefore, therefore is important. He tells them, Your heart is thickened, hardened. You have some responsibility too, as Paul puts it here. You closed your own eyes. You are the ones who willfully rejected. But God has thickened your heart with the sending forth of the word. Lest he heal you, God is doing something here in judgment. Therefore, the gospel is going to go to the nations. They will listen. Which is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. The other place where Paul quotes this passage. You can read Romans 11 later. I'm going to try to sketch it out here very briefly, but there's a lot of detail in that chapter. Essentially, 
Paul's dealing with the same issue. How have the Jews largely rejected this message? It's about the Jewish Messiah. How can that be? And there he says there is a partial hardening that God has brought on the Jewish people. It's not complete. I'm a Jew, I believe. There are other Jews right here who believe. It's not complete, but it is a hardening that God has brought. And then he quotes our passage from Isaiah, same one that's here. Why is that, he says? So that the hardening of the Jews will chase the gospel out into the nations. And it will go all across the Gentile world and gather in many. And when the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered in, Paul then completes his explanation, then God will remove the hardening and bring in a whole bunch of Jews. And that'll be the end. There's a lot I skipped over there. Read the chapter. But his point is, the point that he makes here in Acts 28, is that there is purpose in God's hardening that reaches far beyond just these individual people right here. It reaches to his global plan. A hardening of a certain people pushes the gospel into many, 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 many other places where God intends to gather in many, 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 many other people. And then it will come back around and I'll remove that hardening and gather in them too. That's God's purpose. His great big global plan. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, we could react like Paul at the end of Romans 11 in jaw-dropped worship. Because who would have thought of that? But there's another way that we should react. Verse 28, they will listen. We should read that, read Romans 11 and, and figure out, Paul's talking about a period in time in which God's attention is going to rest on gathering in mostly, not exclusively, but mostly Gentile people. And it will happen. That's the period that we live in right now. That's where we are with God's assured statement. It will happen. They will hear the gospel. They will believe, like Jesus in John 10. I have other sheep, not of this Jewish fold. I have other sheep. I'm going to go gather them. They will hear my voice, and they will follow me. It's going to happen. It's a promise, assured. God will surely gather in His people through the proclamation of the gospel. It's what he's promised. It's what he's doing. That is an important foundational confidence builder for us. How should we respond to that? God's promised in this period of time that I've worked out, I mean, it's scope far larger than any of us, human history scope. I've worked out something in which I'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They will hear it. They will believe. Rest assured. How should we respond to that? I hope that by this point in the book of Acts, that answer is entirely obvious. I hope that by this point in the book of Acts, the answer to the question, God has promised that his gospel will go forth and will bear fruit, that his sheep will hear his voice when the gospel is proclaimed. What should I do? I hope that is crystal clear. That's the second observation. 
We must prioritize the continuous, bold proclamation of the gospel. I hope that is obvious as the sun shining behind me right now. We must prioritize the bold, continuous proclamation of the gospel. God has promised when the gospel goes forth, I will gather in people. Take the gospel forth. I see that in in the somewhat ironic direction that this passage takes. Luke wants to emphasize something here. He shows us Paul's behavior, just carrying on as normal. Paul's in Rome, why? For a trial with Caesar. If you ask Paul, he says, no, no, I'm not. I'm in Rome to evangelize Rome. And there's a trial, I guess, coming. Paul's carrying on with his usual M.O. It all works out just like Antioch and Pisidia. Thessalonica, Philippi, you run through all the cities, the same thing happens. Tells us something about Paul's priorities here. But it's more explicit in verses 30 and 31, the closing verses of the passage and of the whole book. The central priority of the proclamation. It's not about the trial, it's not about history, it's not about Paul's biography. This is the mission of the church. If you're, if you're watching a movie, a film, the last scene of a movie is very often constructed to kind of point the viewing audience down the path they're supposed to mentally walk here. For instance, there's a, there's a romantic comedy that I know that has... I, I do actually know romantic comedies. Some. But there is one that I know that has the final scene of the couple that's been kind of, you know, the couple throughout the movie. They're married... They're lounging together on a park bench in the sun, reading a book. She's visibly pregnant, and the camera kind of pans out. Now, there's a whole bunch of other details from the plot of the movie that have not been resolved yet, but we're supposed to think, and they got married, and they settled down, and they started a family, and they lived at peace, able to lounge on park benches and read in the sun. The end. That's what, that's what the point is. That's why the movie ends like that. You're supposed to think, here's what's going forward. How does the movie of Acts end? you got a guy who, part of the tension throughout the last half of the book has been, can he do this or not? Are the Jews going to be able to shut him down? Are the Romans going to execute him or not? You know, how's this going to work? And the camera pans out with him just going on and on and on, and a Roman guy, a Roman soldier chained to him just sitting there listening. And a whole crowd of people in the room listening. As you pull back, the scene changes and those people leave and other people come in and the guard changes, but the same thing goes on and on. What we're supposed to see here is this just goes on. This is our calling. This is what God is up to and what he means for us individually to be up to and what he means for our church to be up to. We are meant to prioritize the proclamation of the gospel. And I'll admit here, I have a little bit of a concern for us. I'm excited about the things that I hear happening, not not just related to the concert, but related to many other conversations. I hear people talking to friends and neighbors and co-workers, sharing the gospel, giving material to people to read. I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. But I have a little bit of a concern because I've been kind of pressing on this pedal for a couple of years now. Through the book of John, John is a whole bunch about Christ and the theme of being sent. 
So as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. The statements of Jesus in the book of John. And then the book of Acts is clearly Acts 1.8, You shall be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Been pressing on that pedal for a while. And we're coming to the book of Acts, and I'm going to switch. I'm done preaching Acts. Going to move to something else, because there are other pedals I need to press on. But my concern is that if I'm not talking about this constantly, will we forget? Will you forget? I pray not, but I'm also a bit of a realist, you might say pessimist. And I realize that I forget. And I'm the one doing the talking. It's really easy for me to forget when it's right in front of me. And so when it's not right in front of me, not right in front of us, will will we forget? I pray not. Write this down somewhere, post it, prioritize the proclamation. What does that mean? How does that look? Obviously, we're not Paul. It's not going to look like it did for Paul. That's actually one of the dangers of me telling a story about a British evangelist on the Titanic. It's sensational. Or reading about Paul. It's sensational. There isn't a one of us that's Paul. We don't have his tenacity or his training or his stamina or his mind. We don't have his time. Most of us aren't single. Many of us have kids. Most of us have other jobs. We don't have the same kind of world. He's coming into a world that is very Jewish and expectant and telling them what the answer is. We come into a world, we live in a world that's heard it all before and has been seriously compromised by a lot of things that call themselves Christianity but are not. Some of that even in our lives, if we're honest. We have a whole different ballgame. So what does it mean to be, for us, corporately, individually, what does it mean for us to be boldly, continually, without hindrance, proclaiming the gospel? How do we do that? It's going to look different in a lot of our lives. And if you want some answers on, on like the how-to level, there's a great insert in the bulletin today. There are books on the table back here. I'd highly recommend the book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, where I got that story. An excellent book. Reader friendly, will guide you. But I want to look at something else that's actually implied in this passage. Something that's hinted at here that I think can help us prioritize the proclamation of the gospel and to do so boldly without hindrance. Start by putting yourself in Paul's shoes. By this point, if you're Paul, by this point in, in your life, I think most of us would forgive you if you had a rather negative attitude towards the Jewish people. Because you've, you've been around this one before, for years. And frankly, it has not gone very well. They are a stiff-necked people, largely under the judgment of God, and frankly, they really hurt me. Emotionally, with the constant pressure and the, the ostracism, physically, how many times have I been beaten or stoned by them? It really hurt me. And they might actually even get me killed because they're trying to finagle things legally to kind of bias the Romans against me, though clearly the Romans don't care. Most of us would forgive you if you had a real kind of a beef with the Jewish people and just said, enough, I don't want anything to do with them anymore. 
It'd be pretty easy to justify even from some of the Old Testament prophets. Paul's not like that. Paul comes to town and does all that he can to gain a hearing for the gospel with the Jewish people. Why? Well, he'll write elsewhere that his heart aches for them. That he yearns for them. He's concerned that they know Christ. He models for us in that what it looks like to love those who hate you and to pray for those who persecute you, like somebody I know taught. He models for us what it looks like to have an attitude like God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He's modeling what has been taught. It consumes Him. He's not having to gulp hard and swallow and suck it up to act like He loves them. He cares for them. He grieves over them. That might not come out of us naturally if we're prioritizing our self and our own comforts, our own pride, our own esteem. Secondly, look at how he undertakes significant risk with the bold ministry that he carries on, chained to the Roman guard. It reads just like a simple fact, but if you think this through, he's going to go before Caesar... And some of the evidence that's going to be produced is that you've done a really interesting job of persuading many of my own guards to be on your side. And you've set this town into some sort of an uproar. And what's the charge against you, actually? Sedition against the empire and causing uproar? Here's the evidence right here in my own palace. You're undermining those who are supposed to guard my life. And now they agree with you, a prisoner. Is that a good thing? For Paul's case? Probably not. Paul doesn't care. What's his priority? Not self-preservation. Not a, a favorable verdict of the trial. His priority is these ones too, Roman soldiers though they are, must hear the gospel. Many of us, I think, would be inclined to lie low and just kind of keep our mouths shut and hope for this to go well. Paul doesn't like that. So I could just say to you, what you need to do is stop prioritizing yourself and stop fearing people. Which is true, but that's kind of on the surface here. Ironically, what I need to say to you and to myself is that to prioritize the proclamation of the gospel, you have to prioritize the gospel in your own heart first. Such that what grips you is God. And God's global purposes, His sovereign control over your life, and His concern for the lost. That must be what grips you. That is what will change you. May God give you grace for that. May He move the gospel into your life, and may it come to grab hold of you, such that it's the most important thing that you know. Far more important than your own life than your own comfort, than your own pride. The prioritizing of the proclamation of the gospel involves us getting over ourselves. And getting over ourselves involves prioritizing gospel and God. That's the foundation. May He do that in you by grace. And may you in discipline pursue it 
Both these things. He must do it by grace. You must pursue it. It doesn't happen while you sit passively on the couch and watch TV. It happens while you engage with God and while you seek Him out. And if you seek Him, you will find Him. He will change you. He will lift up in your heart's eyes the Gospel. And God Himself that moves us beyond ourselves and into His world for His purposes and for the sake of other people. May He do that in you. God has prioritized the proclamation of the gospel. Have you? And if not, how you get there is you prioritize the gospel in your own life. I'm going to close now by just saying, sit and pray. We're going to move towards communion. But take a minute and sit and pray. And ask God, have I prioritized the gospel in my own life? Have I prioritized the proclamation of the gospel or not? Ask God to do whatever work needs to happen in your life. And then I'll close this in prayer and move us to communion. Father, would you do a work in us to cause us to see you and to think about you. Cause us to love you and to trust in you. To find our joy in following after you and embracing your mission. When your son walked the earth, he said that he had been sent. He had come to seek and to save those who were lost. It is very close to his heart. Very close to his passion. And to be like him means that it would be very close to our hearts and our passions. Bring that about, Lord. I pray that for myself, for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, as we move towards communion and we look at your body and your blood broken and shed for us, will you cause us to appreciate the gospel in new and in different ways, perhaps? We thank you for what you've done and pray you would continue to rest upon us here now creating a holy atmosphere in which we can meet with you in worship, we can understand your forgiveness and your grace, we can see your love in tangible symbol, and can give thanks. Lord, rest upon us now, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.